Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. The Gallic defenders of the great town of Avaricum had started out supremely confident. From their stout walls and tall towers of thick timber, they could repel any attempt the Romans made at breaking through. But they wouldn't even make it to the walls, though, surrounded as Avaricum was by dense, deep marsh, with only a single narrow causeway across to the huge main gate. Stupid Caesar, the defenders thought. What did he think? That he could just impose his will on Gaul through intimidation, slaughter and slavery, and that the Gauls would simply roll over and say, thanks Gaius. The Great Rebellion had begun just weeks earlier, and the rebels had responded to Caesar's rapid advance against them by burning every town, village, farm and granary for miles around. Avaricum was only spared because it was too fine a town to destroy, especially as it could be so easily defended from these southern monsters. The Romans would soon starve, and their weakened bodies would be carved up by Gallic sword and axe. But now, the defenders of Avaricum weren't so sure. Caesar was building something. At first it wasn't clear what it was, but it soon took shape as a huge ramp of wood and earth, 300 feet wide and 80 high. This madman was going to simply walk his men up and over the walls. But it was taking forever. Caesar wouldn't attack for a while. In the meantime, one particular dark, freezing cold night, it began to rain. Hard. It came in fat, frigid drops, so torrential that cloaks soaked through in seconds and the noise was deafening. What little light there was showed the Romans just as miserable, cowering under whatever shelter they could find. Just a quick break then, the defenders thought. Get out of this rain and in front of a fire. It's one of the best feelings in the world, isn't it? When you're cold and wet, but head inside and start warming your hands in front of a fire, swapping sopping clothes for dry ones. The rain was still hammering down, drowning out everything. But suddenly, something else was there. The whole hut shook as one of its walls leaned over slightly, amid an almighty crack that made everyone jump in alarm. That wall was right up against Avaricum's palisade. They all looked at each other as realisation dawned in an instant. They snatched up swords, axes and spears and made for the door. But as they turned towards it, it crashed open to reveal the feral grin of an armoured Roman legionary. Short sword gleaming in the firelight, rain dripping from his helmet, nose and beard. Some filthy Latin curse filled the air as he launched himself into the room along with a dozen other legionaries, and the Gauls roared in response, flying into the fray. The fight was bitter. Twelve men versus twelve men, swords stabbing, axes hacking, knives flashing. 
The room wasn't big, and it became a mad mass of flailing limbs, bloody mouths and savage violence. The Romans and Gauls alike were in the embrace of death, as they bit, kicked, headbutted, stabbed and chopped at each other. Hearts pounding, the men struggled for dear life. All shouts of curses replaced by guttural grunts of strength, heavy snatched breaths and screams of pain. It seemed like an age, but eventually the fight was over. The last Gaul alive looked around him to see his comrades all dead, along with five Romans. He nursed a deep gash in his right arm, but a deeper sense of pride. He knew he was dying, but he knew too that his countrymen would fight on. He didn't have the strength to deflect the death cut when it came, but he died smiling, because the Gauls were united for the first time. Avaricum might be lost, but there was no way Caesar could resist the might of all Gaul, and the man who led them. And while he wouldn't be there to see it, he was nearly right. Because soon, that new Gallic leader would give Julius Caesar his first real taste of defeat. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Rise of Julius Caesar, Vercingetorix. The list of enemies ancient Rome might have feared, and probably at least grudgingly respected, is a decent length. Most of them, even now, are known as courageous warriors resisting the acquisitive juggernaut that was Rome, usually at the cost of their own lives. Hannibal, Spartacus, Boudicca, Arminius, to name just a few. But one whose name deserves to be at the very top of the list of proud and heroic warriors fighting for the liberty of their people is Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix was a tall, young warrior of the Arverni tribe, a tribe Caesar counted as a friend of Rome and long acquainted with the benefits of Roman trade and civilization. By no means were the Arverni considered Romanized, but they were peaceful, subdued by the prosperity and wealth that geographic and political proximity to Rome brought. But Vercingetorix had Arverni aristocratic blood, and probably some of its arrogance to go along with the customary long, flowing hair and bushy moustache of the Gallic elite. He yearned for greater freedom from Rome, especially after the recent wars of Julius Caesar all over the rest of Gaul. So when he heard of a Druid-inspired slaughter of Roman merchants further north in Gaul, he decided to act. He tried to convince the elders of his tribe to lead an uprising of the Gauls, but when they refused and called him crazy, he took matters into his own hands. Raising a mob of cutthroats and outcasts, he ousted the Arverni leadership, executed them, and took power for himself. He then sent a siren call to all corners of Gaul, urging warriors to flock to his banner of resistance to Rome, his beacon of freedom for Gaul. 
Men from every tribe came to him, most with the support of their leaders. For the first time in history, thousands upon thousands of Gallic warriors united behind a single leader and a single purpose. Throw Julius Caesar and his Roman legions out of Gaul for good. For Caesar, the timing couldn't have been worse, which of course was part of the Gallic plan. It was winter and Caesar was spending some much-needed time back in his provinces in and close to northern Italy, giving the administration the attention it needed and keeping close to Rome. When we left off in our last episode, Caesar had felt confident he had conquered Gaul by 55 BC, and he had then spent three years punishing Germanic tribes for raiding Gaul and crushing relatively small and isolated Gallic revolts. There had been one serious rebellion under a leader called Ambirix, but this too he had put down before embarking on an orgy of revenge on the tribes which had risen up. Now it was 52 BC, and finally he had just declared his intention to turn Gaul into a Roman province. It was these two acts, the bloodlust of Caesar's revenge and the realisation of turning Gaul into an official Roman province that kicked off the whole chain of Gallic revolt. When the Celtic Druids felt, quite rightly as it turned out, that the Romans would threaten their sacred groves now that they felt confident enough to call Gaul Roman, they sharpened their knives on the throats of those unfortunate Roman merchants. So, with Druids stoking the fires of war, and Vercingetorix calling all Gaul to unite behind him in the dead of winter, Caesar was concerned. He said himself, There was such a passion among the Gauls for liberty and for renewing the ancient glory of war, that no Roman rewards, no alliances, not even any friendship with Caesar could hold them back from throwing themselves with all their heart and soul into the fight for freedom. And that fight for freedom brought itself to Caesar's own doorstep, because rather than wait for Caesar to advance, Vercingetorix invaded the province. The Gauls fanned out, spreading terror and destruction far and wide, and the plan to tie up Caesar defending against these attacks worked perfectly. While Caesar raised a militia and beat the Gallic attacks back across the border, thousands of other Gauls descended on the heavily fortified camps of the Roman legions overwintering in Gaul itself. They were hard-pressed, but stayed resolutely behind their walls. During the revolt of Ambirix, the Gauls had feigned friendship by telling the Roman legions of one fort to flee in the face of the imminent arrival of thousands of Germanic warriors bent on their destruction. When the Romans believed the tale and agreed to leave the safety of their forts, they were led to the confines of a valley, surrounded at each end, and then butchered nearly to a man. The Roman legions learned that lesson the hard way. In the dead of winter and without support, 
stay within the safety of the Roman fortified camps. Vercingetorix, without the benefit of siege warfare, could only hope to starve them out. Caesar wouldn't be around for months, busy as he was expelling Gauls from the province, and anyway, blocked from marching north by the impassably snowy mountains of the massive central. But Caesar did what became a hallmark of his during the Gallic Wars. The seemingly impossible. He pushed his troops hard, cleared the snow from the narrow mountain passes, and came down the other side so unexpectedly that the Gauls broke off their sieges in the face of the serried ranks of Roman red. Now, reunited with the legions in Gaul, Caesar could count on 50,000 troops, probably around the same as Vercingetorix. The first thing he decided to do was Blitzkrieg. He sent small cavalry detachments into Arvernian territory, spreading panic and forcing Vercingetorix to hunt them down. But the Gallic chieftain was a wily adversary and wasn't willing to dance to Caesar's tune. He had probably served with Caesar's armies as an auxiliary in previous years. He'd seen firsthand how the Roman war machine could sweep aside Gallic forces that vastly outnumbered their own so he wasn't about to waste time chasing bandit Roman cavalry, as annoying as they were, and he wasn't about to commit himself to a pitched battle. Not just yet. First, he decided on the scorched earth policy that the Gallic chieftains agreed would see all buildings, cattle and crops either carried away or destroyed for miles around. Caesar would be starved to death. The only problem with the strategy is that they left Avaricum untouched. Caesar's armies predictably won the first few skirmishes, but hunger quickly became a problem when food and supplies ran low. Avaricum then became his only option. Surrounded by marsh and swamp and heavily fortified, Avaricum was thought by the Gauls to be impregnable. Maybe luring Caesar there was a masterstroke. Focus his efforts on a futile assault on the town, starve his army even more, and eventually Vercingetorix could overwhelm him among the reeds. But he also didn't wait to fight. They fought skirmishes and raids constantly, but each Gallic attack was beaten off by the legions as Caesar had his huge ramp built. Eventually, it was ready, and when that night the heavens opened with torrential rain came, Caesar saw his opportunity. Once Caesar's troops were over the wall and opened the gate, it wasn't so much a fight as a massacre. The Romans butchered nearly the entire population of the town, some 40,000 men, women and children. Such a disaster would surely have shattered the unity of the Gauls under Vercingetorix, shattered the belief they had in him. But Vercingetorix had argued strongly against sparing Avaricum from the scorched earth policy, and he used a big fat told you so to actually increase his standing. If anything, 
Caesar's merciless slaughter attracted even more recruits to Vercingetorix's army. And now began a race to another major Gallic citadel, Gagovia, the hometown of Vercingetorix himself. But the Gauls learned of Caesar's plan and burned all the bridges across the river Allia, which blocked his route. The river was winter swollen, and Caesar didn't much fancy fording it. Nor could they build a bridge, because the Gallic army shadowed them from the opposite bank. It was infuriating. So Caesar used a little magic trick he'd learned. In the dark of night, he hid two of his six legions in a forest, and the next day continued to march with his remaining four to give the appearance of looking for a ford across the river. The only difference was that he had split his four legions into six slightly smaller contingents, so that to the lazy observer, there were still six whole legions with him. Vercingetorix swallowed the bait and shadowed him down the river, and when he was out of sight, the two legions Caesar had left in the forest emerged and built a bridge. This was one of the often overlooked superpowers of the Roman army. The ability to build infrastructure in the blink of an eye while on campaign. It included the fortified camps they built every night while marching. A huge ramp to assault a fortified town surrounded by marsh and, of course, bridges. Once Caesar heard the bridge was complete, he simply switched directions in the night, stole a march on Vercingetorix, and was across the Allia River while the Gauls were still eating their breakfast. Now the race truly began, as Vercingetorix strove to get to his hometown before Caesar, which he did manage to do, just. Caesar, as always, was confident. But little did he know he was about to get his first bloody nose. He built a small camp on a hill close to Gagovia, but he soon realised that another hill much closer to the city was suddenly empty of Vercingetorix's troops, where before it had been swarming with them. Taking it would mean controlling the city's food and water supply, so victory was within his grasp. Caesar gathered his men at nightfall and whispered his orders, as if keeping their secrecy from the gods themselves. Take that hill, he showed them, but under no circumstances go any further. And absolutely, definitely do not assault the city. The centurions nodded their understanding, and the troops melted away into the night. By dawn, the sounds of steel on steel filled the air in the distance, but it was still too dark to see. As the sun rose higher, Caesar could see his troops on the hill and smiled. Vercingetorix didn't have the heart for a fight, he thought. But then his heart dropped as he watched his army continue on. Eagerness for glory and Caesar's praise had persuaded the troops to assault the city, despite their commander's direct orders. Caesar dispatched riders to haul them back in, but it was too late. Men were scaling the walls of Gogovia. 
It seemed at first as if they might succeed, but then the Gallic troops Vercingetorix had stationed within the city emerged and pelted the Romans with artillery, arrows and rocks. Any men that had made it to the walls were overwhelmed and thrown screaming to their deaths below. A simultaneous Gallic counterattack now swept into the flank of the Roman forces at the foot of the wall, crumpling their lines in the ferocity of the charge. Long swords swung in huge, graceful arcs, cutting down disorganised Romans with ease. Axes hacked into Romans who had dropped their shields to climb the wall, and throwing spears slammed into men, knocking them from their feet and throwing them to the ground hard. Gallic cavalry thundered in too, bowling over legionaries now panicking in the chaos. The Romans, rediscovering their discipline and managing to reform in the face of the onslaught, now began to withdraw back to the main Roman lines. As they did so, Caesar's allies the Aedui showed up with 10,000 cavalry to assist in the withdrawal. But thinking that the allies were more of Vercingetorix's men, the withdrawing legions attacked them. The Aedui shouted desperately that they were friends, but were quickly forced to defend themselves. Many broke off and rode to a safe distance, but many proud warriors continued to fight the Roman allies who had dared to attack and betray them. The whole thing was a debacle. His unruly men had gifted the Gauls of victory which would inspire thousands more to join the fight against Rome. He had no choice but to withdraw. Vercingetorix and the Gauls now sensed victory was close. Caesar moved north and in desperation crossed the Loire River by stationing cavalry a little way upstream to break the current while his men waded through up to their necks. A fitting analogy. The Gauls were all around Caesar's army, slashing and burning all around so that the Romans found no supplies anywhere. As starvation approached, even Caesar's most ardent allies, the Aedui, switched sides and joined the rebels. If something drastic didn't change in the next few days, everything would be lost. Caesar would have to withdraw south to the province, giving up on Gaul and giving his enemies in the Senate a chance to pounce. He would be stripped of his command and he'd spend the rest of his life defending himself from lawsuits, banged up in prison or sitting in some exiled backwater in shame. Maybe all three. The wolves were circling Caesar's army as it trudged north, almost aimlessly, hopelessly. But I think this was Caesar's plan now. His only hope was to lure Vercingetorix to attack what he thought was a mortally wounded beast, but then show him the true worth of the Roman legions. He knew that if he could get the Gauls to fight a pitched battle, he could probably win. And the plan worked. His ranks swollen by the rumours of victory at Gagovia, Vercingetorix launched an all-out assault on the Roman marching column. From all sides, screaming Gallic warriors came running, a few with mail or leather armour, most wearing nothing but trousers and paint. 
Tens of thousands of these men ran at the Romans with wild abandon, shrieking death. Centurions recovered from their surprise by roaring the order to form squares so they could not be flanked, but they were completely enveloped by this marauding mass of enraged Gauls. Gallic cavalry dashed in, charging at the last moment any unit which hadn't yet formed up, and causing chaos wherever they went. They wheeled about, throwing spears which often caused small gaps in the Roman lines, into which warriors would immediately swing axes and longswords. Small gaps were then cleaved into large ones, and a sea of crazed Gauls would rush into a Roman square, collapsing it immediately and creating a mad scrum of savage individual combat. Caesar was everywhere, rushing up and down his lines with a bodyguard, encouraging his own men and cutting down Gauls who tried to end him. But he could see his gamble was close to failing. His men were too tired and too starved, the Gauls too many and too wild. But Caesar's genius wasn't just in his tactical brilliance. It was in his strategic forethought and diplomacy. Because now, just when he needed it most, thousands of Germanic cavalry raced into view and cannoned into the rears and flanks of the Gallic army. Caesar had wasted no time since Gagovia, dispatching messengers to Germanic tribes, persuading them to aid him in exchange for Roman rewards. And now, incredibly, they had come like a sea of messianic angels riding to Caesar's rescue. The shock ambush of German cavalry had a cataclysmic effect on the Gauls, who now broke and ran. It was all Vercingetorix could do to escape unharmed. Shattered by the sudden turn of events, Vercingetorix now made the fatal error of moving his army to the soaring walls of Elysia. It seemed on the surface that Elysia might be the perfect place for the Gallic army to lick its wounds. It was virtually impregnable, situated on steep cliffs, surrounded by rivers and guarded by heavy fortifications. There was no way Caesar could storm the city. But there was also no way that Vercingetorix could leave either. He had just handed all the initiative to his Roman rival. As if to hammer home the point, Caesar ringed the entire city of Elysia with a 12-foot wall, double ditches and towers every 80 feet. Vercingetorix was going nowhere. He could either sally forth and fight the Romans on their wall, or starve. In either case, Caesar was now sure of victory. But just before the last of the Gauls had entered through the closing gates of the citadel, Vercingetorix had sent messengers racing across the country, calling for one grand last stand, which would see Gaul freed from the clutches of Rome, or strangled by them. The call was answered by more than even Vercingetorix thought possible. Caesar himself estimated that on top of 80,000 besieged Gauls in Elysia, 
250,000 Gallic warriors now came from every city, town, hamlet and village of Gaul with one mission in mind. Destroy the Romans. Modern estimates put this figure at around 95,000 Gauls in all. Still a fearsome number. They faced between 50 and 55,000 Romans. Caesar knew that he could easily be simply overwhelmed by numbers like those. So he got thinking. And it didn't take him long, because Caesar loved a good wall. He'd first seen unconventional walls used by Crassus when he built a 40-mile wall to trap Spartacus in the toe of Italy. And Caesar built a wall to stop the Helvetii using their preferred route to southwest Gaul, forcing them through the mountains instead. And of course, he used a wall now to trap Vercingetorix inside Alesia. Now though, Caesar's wall fetish reached its climax when he heard about the vast Gallic relief force heading his way. Instead of breaking off the siege as most commanders would have done, he built, yes, you guessed it, a second wall. He ringed his first wall around Alesia with a second wall, 12 miles long in circumference. Caesar and his army were now in a circular camp, ringed by a palisade either side, with thousands of Gauls and a city on one side, and tens of thousands of Gauls on the other. What was to follow is the stuff legends are made of. Vercingetorix wasted no time in getting to work. As soon as the relief force arrived, it swarmed to the outer Roman wall, filling in the ditches and assaulting it in multiple places. Vercingetorix sallied from the city at the same time, with Gauls pouring from the gates to scale the inner wall with ladders. So many places on both walls were hit simultaneously that even Caesar worried they might be overwhelmed. Archers loosed volley upon volley into the seething mass of men beneath them, and Scorpion artillery cracked loose huge bolts, leaving bloody smears where a dozen men had stood. All day from dawn to dusk, a vicious two-front battle raged, with Caesar himself even losing a sword fighting on the front lines, soot and blood etched into his face like all the rest. Eventually, it was his German cavalry which saved the day again, when it swept from the outer wall's gate and crashed into the flank of the relief force, breaking its will as the sun began to set. The armies returned to their camps, but this fight was far from over. Vercingetorix allowed for a day of rest, but at night the Gallic chieftain led his men quietly from the city and got ready to clear the inner wall of defenders. Caesar himself wrote that the Gauls startled the night with a shout and suddenly opened up on the Roman guards a tremendous fire of sling bolts, arrows and stones intended to sweep them from the ramparts. The Romans replied with scorpions and javelins, and for a while the two sides shot death at each other by firelight. But the Gauls suddenly concentrated their fire on just one section of the inner wall, 
clearing it of Romans just as ladders and grappling hooks were thrown up. A group of huge Gauls bounded up the rungs of the ladders, and together they lay about them with enormous long swords, almost dancing with the ease with which they practised their sword song. With an agility which belied their huge size, they twisted one way using momentum and strength to cleave heads from shoulders, before suddenly spinning and bringing the blade in a devastating upswing, soaring bodies in half from groin to chest. Their success was allowing more Gauls to gain a foothold on the walls, and Caesar immediately spotted the danger. He roared at one of his best young officers to rush in reinforcements, and those reinforcements launched themselves at the Gauls on the wall, bringing numbers and heavy shields to bear against the huge demigods. The counter-attack was strong enough to push the Gauls tighter and tighter together, where they could no longer dance or swing their swords, and were finally brought down in a frantic flurry of violence. The young officer who led them was Mark Antony. The Gauls were in despair now, realising they would probably only have one shot left at breaking Caesar's walls and slaughtering all inside. Finally, Vercingetorix was told about a weak point in the Roman fortifications, where a steep ridge had meant the wall could not be fully enclosed. During the night, he led his men in what he knew would be their last attack. Everything hung in the balance. The Gallic relief force was waiting. Diversionary attacks all along the walls were waiting. Vercingetorix himself was waiting at the Roman fort at the weak point. And at dawn, they waited no longer. The strident call of Gallic war horns broke the dawn silence, sending a flock of birds scattering into the sky as thousands upon thousands of men surged towards the Roman walls in a final, last-ditch attempt to save their freedom and independence. Wave after wave of Gauls broke upon the outer wall, flooding forward in what looked like an irresistible surge. Volleys of arrows disappeared into the wild mass, surely bringing down men, but seeming to do little. Even the incessant cracks of scorpion bolts flying out faster than the eye can see didn't seem to make a dent. Legionaries at the fort battled desperately but even these hard men looked out in fear at the endless ranks of ghouls, struggling to be the next to come running up the ladder to deal out death. The diversionary attacks elsewhere only worked for so long, until Caesar realised the fort at the weak point was the main target. At first, he sent five cohorts from other sections of the wall to shore up the defence at the fort, where they were completely surrounded on both sides by Gauls raving death and hate. Hundreds of them were dying, only to be replaced by the next man. Still, the Gauls came on, and the Roman legionaries stabbed and hacked in a frenzied attempt to keep the walls secure. But Romans were falling too, many dead, many screaming wounded. Caesar now sent more reinforcements to the fort as Vercingetorix ordered an all-out assault. One way or another, 
he could sense the end was coming. A storm of missiles slammed into the reinforcing Romans as they tried to reach the fort, driving them back. And now Caesar himself led the last remaining reserves into the fray, shield held high, bellowing at his men to follow him. This was bloody, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat of the worst kind. Men were struggling desperately with each other in the press, grunting and gasping for air, screaming and shouting, fingers clawing at eyes, teeth biting anything in range, knives finding gaps in armour. Centurions thundered at men to hold the line, throw that ladder back, cut that grappling hook free. Shields were battered to shards and helmets hewn in two, as two huge armies of men savaged each other in ways even animals never would. It was Caesar's talismanic influence which turned the tide, spurring his men to new levels of heroism, strength and stamina. An expert, experienced commander, he saw the first flicker of doubt ripple through the relief force and knew this was the moment he had been waiting for for hours. He ordered the German cavalry out of the wall's gate to charge the Gallic flank and not stop until they were either dead or the horses blown. And that's exactly what they did. As the wavering Gauls outside the walls brought their exhausted heads up and spotted the German cavalry bearing down on them, they broke, streaming away in a great fan of now panicked men. What had been a terrifying animated army just seconds before was now just a pack of individual fugitives running for their lives. The Germans slaughtered thousands as they ran. Vercingetorix watched the massacre with a heavy expression, the man himself full of dread and regret. He pulled his men back from the inner wall, knowing now there was no hope. The next morning he rode out of the city gates with back straight and head high, heading straight for the Roman camp. There he found Caesar, dismounted and fell silently to his knees. Vercingetorix was hauled off to Rome in chains, kept alive only for the purpose of Caesar's public triumph. He languished in prison for six years until the triumph took place, when he was finally paraded through the streets tied to a chariot before being publicly strangled to death. Gaul was not yet completely pacified, but it would be soon. The Senate awarded 20 days of thanksgiving for his incredible victory at Elysia, much to the annoyance of his enemies there. The conquest of Gaul came as a huge human cost, estimated to have been up to a million dead and another million enslaved. But Caesar set out to bring himself glory, military, political and financial glory. In that, he succeeded wildly. In fact, Caesar had etched his name into history. 
Join us next time for our final episode on the rise of Julius Caesar. As his enemies in Rome, jealous of his successes and fearful of his ambitions, start to ratchet up the pressure. The Senate had never authorised him to conquer Gaul, and for this, many began to call for him to disband his army and return to Rome for trial. The problem for Caesar was that his former triumvirate partner, Pompey the Great, was one of them. He now had a choice. Give everything he had earned to his enemies, or cross the Rubicon with his army and ignite civil war. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.